Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 11, Chapter 25, The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Okay, everybody settled. Let's uh, get into this week's uh, topic, which is uh, Chapter 25 uh, on the general law of capitalist accumulation. I think it's sometimes uh, important to, to sort of ask the question, you know, what is this book about? Um, and the answer to that question is very important because it has a lot to say about how you read it. Uh, if you read it uh, economistically in the sense of saying, okay, this is uh, a book about the general laws of motion of capital and we want to create this theoretical understanding of how those general laws work, uh, then we would read it in, in one way. Uh, if we saw it as a, a, a sort of a more philosophical kind of reflection on how to interpret the world uh, as well as uh, uh, understand it, uh, then we would read it another way. But I think uh, I would want to read it uh, very much in the lines of the opening sentence of chapter 25 where Marx says, in this chapter we shall consider the influence of the growth of capital on the fate of the working class. Uh, I think capital is very much, particularly volume one, is very much a book about what happens to the working class, why the working class is in the condition that it's in, and what are the general circumstances so, and this is important to, to Marx, I think, because after all, <clears throat> he doesn't want to explain, you know, encourage economists to be revolutionaries. Uh, he wants the working class to understand why it is that they live under the conditions that they live under and they work under the conditions that they work under. Uh, so in that sense, I think if you say, well, this is a big book about uh, the condition of the working class and why it is that condition, then you read it uh, in a slightly different way than you would if you read it as a, an economist looking for the laws of motion. Nevertheless, Marx does discuss the laws of motion because it's those laws of motion uh, which uh, determine the fate of the working class in terms of what it, you know, of how it lives and how it works. So the general law 
uh, understood as a, the laws of accumulation and how the coercive laws of competition work and, and, and the like, all of those things are means to understand something. Uh, and in exactly the same way that in the chapter on the working day, if you just go back to that, and then the coercive laws of competition force capitalists to treat the working class in a certain kind of way, and uh, therefore you get the forms of oppression uh, arising, uh, which are connected to uh, the, the tremendous pressure to increase the length of the working day, uh, and to therefore suck as much value out of labor as possible uh, within those hours. So when he says here then that he wants to consider uh, the, the influence of the growth of capital on the fate of the working class, then you start to see what the design of this whole chapter is. Now, the chapter is really divided uh, into two parts. The first four, four sections are sort of a, a building of the argument. And, and then uh, the, the fifth section is a very long illustrative uh, discussion of the conditions of, uh, uh, of labor uh, that uh, result from the way in which the general law of capital accumulation works. I want to say one other thing, just to remind you, uh, as I always think it's important to do, that the general law of capitalist accumulation that Marx comes up with here is a contingent law. Uh, it assumes that there's absolutely no problem of selling commodities in the market. It assumes there is really very little impact, except for a very short section, of uh, the forms of distribution like uh, rent and interest and merchant capital and, and all the rest of it. So this is, this is an argument which is built around certain assumptions. Assumptions are no problem in the market. Assumptions that there are no problems of distribution. Uh, assumption that uh, you, you're working with a closed system. Uh, and if those assumptions don't hold, then the story that Marx would tell here would be rather different, and I'll be pointing out uh, some of that as we go through. He starts off, however, with a, a, a little argument about something called the composition of capital. Uh, I think this got inserted uh, into volume one uh, because Marx was working on Volume 3 uh, at the time that Volume 1 was published. And uh, Volume 3 uh, is very much taken up with uh, the whole kind of question of the organic composition of capital, as he calls it, and the transformation in the organic composition of capital, a rising organic composition of capital, which produces a falling rate of profit, arguments of that sort. So he felt, I think, it was important to insert something about this notion of uh, value composition into the argument here. Uh, in practice, in this chapter, however, you don't really need to know that. I mean, you can actually work out what's going on in this chapter without going through 
uh, uh, the, the kind of these concepts of, of composition of capital. But let me just briefly uh, go over them. Uh, Marx uh, actually sends, ends up with uh, uh, three concepts. Uh, the value composition, the technical composition, and the organic composition of capital. And it's important to understand uh, the differences between them. The technical composition of capital is simply the physical capacity of the laborer to work over a certain amount of constant capital or a certain amount of raw materials. Uh, how many shirts can a laborer produce in, in, a, in a, an hour? How many pairs of socks can uh, the laborer produce in an hour? So it's a physical, uh, a physical uh, composition of capital, a physical productivity measure. Uh, the value composition is something different, which is uh, the value relations. Uh, how much constant capital, the value of the constant capital, the value of the variable capital, what's the relationship between the variable capital and the constant capital? Uh, and again, the variable capital will depend upon the wage rate, and the constant capital will depend upon the value of all of those means of production. Now, clearly, the ratio uh, between constant capital and variable capital is a measure of value productivity. Uh, and that is rather different from the physical uh, measure. There can be quite radical transformations in the, in the physical measure with no impact whatsoever on the value relation. On the other hand, there can be transformations of the value relation where the physical stuff is constant. So, But then he comes up with a, th a third uh, concept, which is the organic composition of capital. And the organic composition of capital uh, is a little bit hard to distinguish between the value composition and the organic composition, but I, the way I would interpret it is the organic composition is what happens to the relations between constant and variable capital consequent upon transformations of technological relations within the labor process. Put it this way. Uh, if uh, a new machine comes along and a laborer that could uh, maybe make uh, three pairs of socks in an hour can suddenly make uh, 20 uh, in an hour, that's changing uh, the value composition, but it's a change that occurs because you've got a new machine. Imagine, however, a situation where you don't change this technology inside, but on the other hand, uh, the raw cotton is now much cheaper because of technological innovations in uh, spinning and all the rest of it. So that the value composition can change without there being any transformation in the organic composition because value composition is taken by a mixture of what goes on inside of the labor process, the technology there, but also there are a lot of external influences on, on the value ratios depending upon the technologies governing the production of raw materials, the production of machines, and, and also, of course, eventually the value of labor power. So we've got these three concepts. Uh, so Marx introduces these, and uh, uh, like I say, they have, a, they have great importance in, in volume three of Capital, 
But here it's really, he's really simply saying that the general law of capital accumulation, which he's going to look at, is going to be affected very much by uh, the value composition and the, the organic composition. Because at a certain point, he's going to introduce the question of technological change. But as an initial starting point in this first section, he keeps technological change out of the picture. He just basically says, what we've seen in the preceding chapter, chapter 24, is that capital has to accumulate uh, surplus value and then reinvest some of that surplus value in the expansion of production. So there's going to be, instead of a kind of cyclical process, a spiral form in which there's going to be a constant expansion of the process of capital accumulation. And that constant expansion means that there must be available more labor and more constant capital. You need, so he starts off by saying, well, the accumulation of capital uh, it, it has uh, with it uh, a, a, an increasing demand for labor power and an increasing demand for part of the constant capital. And what this does is to say that increase of capital, and as he says in page 764, accumulation of capital is therefore multiplication of the proletariat. That is, increasing expansion means that more and more wage laborers have to be sucked into this capitalist production machine. If there is a situation, however, and he points this out on the page before, uh, where the requirements of accumulating capital may exceed the growth in labor power or in the number of workers, the demand for workers may outstrip the supply and thus wages may rise. So we've got the possibility of this, this spiral form expanding the demand for labor. Uh, the supply of labor is not there. Demand and supply relations get up. Therefore, labor uh, the wages rise. Now, this is the one moment where Marx abandons his assumption that all commodities exchange at their value. Because what, in effect, he's saying here is that a wage situation can arise in which workers will be paid more than their value uh, by virtue of the fact that there's a scarcity of labor relative to the demand uh, from uh, the expansion of capital. Uh, so, accumulation, he says, reproduces the capital relation on an expanded scale, with more capitalists or bigger capitalists at one pole and more wage laborers at the other. But, as he then goes on to say, uh, a little bit further on in this section, it, that actually what this means is that the situations uh, are such that they can be very favorable to the workers for certain periods uh, under the conditions of accumulation we've assumed so far, he says on 768, uh, and these are the ones which are most favorable to the workers, their relation of dependence on capital takes on forms which are endurable, or as, uh, and he quotes somebody called Eden, are easy and liberal. Instead of becoming more intensive with the growth of capital, this relation of dependence only becomes more extensive. Uh, the sphere of capital's exploitation and domination merely extends with its own dimensions the number of people subjected to it and a rise in the price of labor as a consequence of the accumulation of capital 
only means, in fact, that the length and weight of the golden chain the wage labourer has already forged for himself to be loosened somewhat. And he talks about, uh, at the end of the 18th century, uh, there was a period where there was increases in wages, uh, but this, he says, is only a quantitative reduction in the amount of unpaid labour the worker has to supply. The reduction can never go so far as to threaten the system itself. What he's suggesting then is that capital, as it expands, expands the demand for labour, the wages go up, and they go up to a certain degree. But then he introduces, the, uh, 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 in a sense, a homeostatic kind of adjustment mechanism. If wages go up, it means that there's less surplus value for the capitalist. If there's less surplus value for the capitalist, there's less capital available for reinvestment. Therefore, there is a slackening in the pace of expansion. In other words, as wages rise, profits go down, profit, the lower profitability, both the incentive and the capacity to reinvest is limited, and that therefore the expansion slackens. Uh, so, so what this suggests is that this, that either the price of labor keeps on rising because its rise does not interfere with the progress of accumulation. And it then goes on to say there's nothing remarkable in this. In this case, it is evident that a reduction in the amount of unpaid labor in no way interferes with the extension of the domain of capital. Or the other alternative, accumulation slackens as a result of the rise in the price of labor because the stimulus of gain is blunted. The rate of accumulation lessens, but this means that the primary cause of that lessening itself vanishes. The mechanism of the capitalist production process removes the very obstacles it temporarily creates. The price of labor falls again to a level corresponding with capital's requirements for self-valorization. It's, it's, it's a sort of homostatic adjustment mechanism. Uh, wages go up, profit goes down, accumulation slackens, wages come down, profit goes up. So you can imagine sort of wave-like kind of uh, with, with, with capital doing this, waving like this, and the wage rate going in the opposite direction. And they both adjust to each other. So Marx is looking at this and saying, this is, this is something that, 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 that uh, can be accommodated within uh, the laws of capital accumulation. And as he says at the bottom of, of 770, to put it mathematically, the rate of accumulation is the independent, not the dependent variable. The rate of wages is the dependent, not the independent variable. It's a very important way of looking at it because we often kind of think, like to think that it, it's the workers who are, who, are, who are driving things up, but Marx is saying, no, it's the other way around. Uh, the rate of accumulation is the independent variable, not the dependent variable. So everything is driven by the rate of accumulation, but the rate of accumulation oscillates around movements in the wage rate. And wages are adjusting to that. He then goes on to say, say this. The law of capitalist production, which really lies at the basis of the supposed natural law of population, can be reduced simply to this. And this is on 771. Uh, if the quantity of unpaid labor supplied by the working class and accumulated by the capitalist class increases so rapidly that its transformation into capital requires an extraordinary addition of paid labor, then wages rise and all other circumstances remaining equal, the unpaid labor diminishes in proportion. The law of capitalist accumulation, mystified by the economists, 
into a supposed law of nature, in fact expresses the situation that the very nature of accumulation excludes every diminution in the degree of exploitation of labour and every rise in the price of labour, which would seriously imperil the continual reproduction on an ever larger scale of the capital relation. So this is the first section. In section two, he kind of says, okay, what happens to this whole process when you introduce technological change, technological dynamism, the search for relative surplus value? Uh, and he kind of says, so far we've considered only one special phase of this process, that in which the increase of capital occurs while the technical composition of capital remains constant. That is, the organic composition is constant. But the process goes beyond this phase. Given the basis of the capitalist system, a point is reached in the course of accumulation at which the development of the productivity of social labor becomes the most powerful lever of accumulation. That is, you cannot imagine this earlier system he's discussed lasting very long without the insertion of strong currents of, uh, of transformation in the productivity of labor through technological change. Uh, which gets us back to the question of the technical composition of capital, which he then analyzes at the bottom of 773 as follow, follows. This change in the technical composition of capital through, te through technological dynamism, this growth in the mass of the means of production as compared with the mass of the labor power that vivifies them is reflected in its value composition by the increase of the constant constituent of capital at the expense of its variable constituent. In other words, the ratio C over V tends to rise. That is, more and more C is being consumed by less and less V because of the technological transformations. Uh, this T turns into a law. The law of the progressive growth of the constant part of capital in comparison with the variable part is confirmed at every step by the comparative analysis of the prices of commodities. The reason is, he says on the next page, 774, the reason is simple. With the increasing productivity of labor, the mass of the means of production consumed by labor increases, but their value in comparison with their mass diminishes. Their value therefore rises absolutely, but not in proportion to the increase in their mass. That is, if, if you get the technological change, then labor is going to use much more physical cotton in the making of the socks, but the value of that cotton may be less because of technological changes in raw cotton production. So what, what this means is that you've got to start then to get into the value composition that all these shifts are going on. But the general tendency is this, the progress of accumulation lessens the relative magnitude of the variable part of capital. That is, the amount being advanced on wages is going down. But this by no means thereby excludes the possibility of a rise in its absolute magnitude. And we're now getting into you know, relative and, 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 and absolute movements. Um, so this uh, transformation which occurs in the technical composition uh, ends up meaning that less and less variable capital is being used 
relative to the amount of constant capital, and that therefore the value composition of capital is rising, the organic composition of capital is rising, the technical composition of capital is rising. Um, Now, this is also then associated with a tendency to start to concentrate uh, means of production in fewer and fewer hands. Because if you're going to have technological dynamism and there's going to be an expansion of act activity within the corporation, then the, the corporation is going to expand in size. And as it expands in size, so you're going to see more and more concentration of capital. So he starts to then say, uh, every individual capital is a larger or smaller concentration of means of production with a corresponding command over a larger or smaller army of workers. Every accumulation becomes the means of new accumulation. With the increasing mass of wealth, which functions as capital, accumulation increases the concentration of the, that wealth in the hands of individual capitalists and thereby widens the basis of production on a large scale and extends the specifically capitalist methods of production. He's really talking about economies of scale, the expansion of corporate, uh, cor corporate activity, individual capitalist activity, and that expansion uh, is, is involved in the concentration of the means of production in fewer and fewer hands. Uh, this changes uh, as, as you go forward. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the themes that is then taken up in this section is the increasing concentration and centralization of capital. Uh, the fragmentation, he says, of the total social capital into many individual capitals or the repulsions of its fractions from each other is counteracted by their attraction. The attraction of capitals no longer means the simple concentration of the means of production and the command over labor, labor, which is identical with accumulation. It is concentration of capitals already formed, destruction of their individual independence, expropriation of capitalist by capitalist, transformation of many small into few large capitals. Capital, he said, grows to a huge mass and a single hand in one place because it has been lost by many in another place. This is centralization proper as distinct from accumulation and concentration. So centralization of capital, which he's taking up on 777, is about the taking over, like mergers and acquisitions, in other words, this is what we look at these days, mergers and acquisitions, take, one capitalist takes over another capitalist, buys out another capitalist, Centralization of capital expands the accumulation of capital faster than occurs through concentration. Concentration occurs because capital produces surplus value. A certain amount of surplus value is plowed back in, and so the, you know, the firm size becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. But it takes many years for concentration to arrive at a point where it's very, very massive and large. So it's far, far quicker to get there by small one capitalist taking over another capitalist and, and eventually expanding things this way. So he then talks, and this is, I think, a very important section, about the laws of this centralization of capitals, or of the attraction of capital by capital. But he then says, these cannot be developed here. 
Now remember, Marx, throughout the volume one of Capital, is dealing with a competitive capitalist system, small scale, okay, some concentration, some centralization going on. But this law of centralization is something which is going to actually end up producing monopoly capital, monopoly power, huge centralization of, of, of activity. Marx recognizes that's likely to happen, but then says, okay, I'm going to exclude it here. So mainly because he wants to keep within that framework of uh, a competitive uh, free market. Uh, a few brief factual indications, he says, about centralization. The battle of competition is fought by the cheapening of commodities. The cheapness of commodities depends, all other circumstances remaining the same, on the productivity of labor and thus depends in turn on the scale of production. Therefore, the larger capitals beat the smaller. They use economies of scale. They can defeat and take over uh, the smaller. The smaller capitals, therefore, crowd into spheres of production which large-scale industry has taken control of only sporadically or incompletely. Uh, here, competition rages in direct proportion to the number and in inverse proportion to the magnitude. Apart from this, an altogether new force comes into existence with the development of capitalist production, the credit system. We haven't seen the credit system so far, and we have a very brief thing of saying, okay, the credit system is going to be foundational for the centralization of capital. The credit system, leveraged buyouts, all those kinds of things, this is going to be absolutely crucial to centralization. And you can't talk about centralization of capital without looking at the way the credit system is going to be used as a vehicle. And as he says, commensurately with the development of capitalist production and accumulation, there also takes place a development of the two most powerful levers of centralization. And those levers are competition and credit. So you compete your way, and that gives you centralization, but you can also use credit uh, to centralize capital. And this leads to a situation what distinguishes centralization from concentration, he says, is that the latter being only another name for reproduction on an extended scale. Centralization may result from a mere change in the distribution of already existing capitals, from a simple alteration in the quantitative grouping of the component parts of social capital. Capital can grow into powerful masses in a single hand in one place, because in other places, has at least been withdrawn from many individual hands. Centralization supplements the work of accumulation by enabling industrial capitalists to extend the scale of their operations. So remember, it's not only through productive activity that capital grows. It can also grow through centralization and economies of scale that are generated by massing together capital in very few hands. I think this is an important argument that's being made here, which is about the way in which powerful masses in a single hand uh, get generated. And Marx is talking about that process and seeing it very clearly in the 1850s and 1860s as having a very important role into the, the future history of capitalism. Even at the bottom of the page, very bottom of page 779, uh, Either you use uh, the credit system and fusion of capitals uh, already formed, or you organize joint stock companies. 
So he starts to look at joint stock companies. And, uh, this is again taking you into volume three territory, uh, and he's just briefly mentioning it, uh, but then drops the whole uh, argument. But what we're seeing uh, in this uh, section is uh, a sort of a, a, a touching upon themes from volume three. Um, but accumulation, he says, the gradual increase of capital by reproduction as it passes from the circular to the spiral form is clearly a very slow procedure compared with centralization. Notice this invocation of the spiral form. We've mentioned this before. The cyclical form he's look, looked at, now he's talking about the spiral form, and it's a spiral form which is absolutely crucial. The masses of capital welded together overnight by centralization reproduce and multiply as the others do, only more rapidly, and they thereby become new and powerful levers of social accumulation. Therefore, when we speak of the progress of social accumulation, we tacitly include the effects of centralization. So we're now looking at this dynamics of capital when we shift from the cyclical to the spiral form. And the spiral form is moving uh, in a way which is expanding and, and centralizing and becoming much more, more uh, dynamic. And this leads into the third section, which is the progressive production of a relative surplus population or industrial reserve army. Uh, on 781, he says, the demand for labor is determined not by the extent of the total capital, but by its variable constituent alone. And that demand falls progressively with the growth of total capital, instead of rising in proportion to it as was previously assumed. In the first section, uh, expansion of capital, expansion of proletariat. Here, expansion of capital, diminution of the proletariat. Um, with the growth of the total capitalist variable constituent, the labor incorporate, uh, incorporated in it, does admittedly increase, but in a constantly diminishing proportion. So then you've got the thing, how fast does this spiral move? If it moves very fast, then yes, there will be some expansion of the labor force, but nowhere near as much as would have been needed if there was no technological change and no centralization of capital. Because the centralization of capital is a transformation of organizational form. And as you remember from chapters uh, on relative surplus value, transformations in organizational form are just as important in affecting productivity of labor as are as the hardware of machines and, and machine production. So, he says, in fact, it is capitalist accumulation that constantly produces and produces, indeed in direct relation with its own energy and extent, a relatively redundant working population, i.e. a population which is superfluous to capital's average requirements for its own valorization and is therefore a surplus population. Now you've got a situation. Demand for labor rises. In the first model of of accumulation, that meant an increase in wages. But if accumulation is also modifying the, the value composition of capital and reducing, uh, through labor-saving innovations, the number of laborers required, then you've got the opposite effect. You've got an expansion and then you've got a contraction of the demand for labor. 
And what does this mean? It means that you can actually create a relatively redundant working population. You put people out of work. Technologically induced unemployment is what he's talking about. Technological change throws people out of work and therefore the labour force which was once required is no longer required. This is what is going to happen through very strong processes of technological change. And what this means is that there's likely to be some strong fluctuations, as he puts it, in which the increase of the variable part of the capital and the number of workers employed by it is connected with violent fluctuations and the temporary production of a surplus population, whether, to, whether this takes the more striking form of the extrusion of workers already employed or the less evident but not less real form of a greater difficulty in absorbing the additional working population through its customary outlets. The working population, he says on 783, therefore produces both the accumulation of capital and the means by which it is itself made relatively superfluous. Workers create the technologies that put them out of themselves out of work. And it does this to an extent which is always increasing. This, says Marx, is a law of population peculiar to the capitalist mode of production. Now, it's very important, I've mentioned this many times in Marx, there are these things in Marx where, okay, you have a universal condition. But then he says, under capitalism, this universal condition has a very specific character. And he's saying the law of population under, within a capitalist mode of production is radically different from law of population in any other mode of production. And then he goes on and says, and in fact, every particular historical mode of production has its own special laws of population, which are historically valid within that particular sphere. An abstract law of population exists only for plants and animals, and even then only in the absence of any historical intervention by man. But if a surplus population of workers is a necessary product of accumulation or of the development of wealth on a capitalist basis, this surplus population also becomes, conversely, the lever of capitalist accumulation. Indeed, it becomes a condition for the existence of the capitalist mode of production. And this is key sentence. It forms a disposable industrial reserve army, which belongs to capital, just as absolutely as if the latter had bred it at its own cost. Independently of the limits of the actual increase of population, it creates a mass of human material always ready for exploitation by capital in the interests of capital's own changing valorization requirements. So, you create unemployment. That unemployment uh, acts as a lever because it actually creates a surplus population that capital needs to expand. And capital can adjust through its technological dynamism to any condition of population change. Now, this is, of course, where Marx comes up against Malthus, and where Marx really disses Malthus no end. Malthus' explanation of, of poverty was, you know, workers bred 
too fast relative to the resources available to feed them and, and all the rest of it. So poverty was due to population, to overpopulation. And that was the explanation. Marx is saying poverty has nothing whatsoever to do with overpopulation. No matter what the population is and what the population condition, capital will always work in such a way as to produce an industrial reserve army because it needs it and the industrial reserve army is something which it produces through technological dynamism. So through this mix of the transformation of the rate of surplus value reinvestment and surplus value reinvestment in new technologies, capital can actually produce poverty. And in fact, what Marx is arguing here is that it is capital that produces poverty, not overpopulation. And that is a crucial argument. Now, what this means is that, uh, again, there's going to be a wave-like motion. Capital will drive certain populations out through technological dynamism, reabsorb them, and then throw them out again. And so this is the kind of dynamism which, which exists. This peculiar cyclical path of modern industry, he says after he's explained this kind of throwing in and out, which occurs in no earlier period of human history, was also impossible when capitalist production was in its infancy. The expansion by fits and starts of the scale of production is a precondition for its equally sudden contraction. The latter again evokes the former, but the former is impossible without disposable human material, without an increase in the number of workers, which must occur independently of the absolute growth of the population. So Marx is kind of saying the absolute growth of the population doesn't affect anything. This increase is affected by the simple process that constantly sets free a part of the working class by methods which lessen the number of workers employed in proportion to the increased production. Modern industries... Falling off. I think I've, I think I've got it. Sorry. I shouldn't gesture so much. <laughs> this increase is affected by the simple process that constantly sets free a part of the working class by methods which lessen the number of workers employed in proportion to the increased production. Modern industry's whole form of motion therefore depends on the constant transformation of a part of the working population into unemployed or semi-employed hands. Effects become causes in their turn, and various vicissitudes of this whole process, which always reproduces its own conditions, take on the form of periodicity. When this periodicity has once become consolidated, even political economy sees that the production of a relative surplus population i.e. a population surplus in relation to capital's average requirements for valorization is a necessary condition for modern industry. And then he takes on Malthus and complains. Capitalist production, he says in 788, can by no means content itself with the quantity of disposable labor power which the natural increase of population yields. It requires for its unrestricted activity an industrial reserve army which is independent 
of these natural limits. So Marx doesn't want to give any credit at all to any idea of overpopulation as being the root of impoverishment. No, poverty is produced by capital. It's produced because capital needs an impoverished surplus population in order to continue on its path of accumulation. Now, the, this relative surplus population has, he says, a number of functions. He says, it, it, the, the setting free of workers proceeds still more rapidly than the technical transformation of the process of production that accompanies the advance of accumulation. One of the things, one of the ways in which this does this is that insofar as production increases in extent and effective powers, uh, it becomes a means of disciplining the labor forces. Capital increases its supply of labor more quickly than its demand for workers. The overwork of the employed part of the working class swells the ranks of its reserve. While conversely, the greater pressure that the reserve by its com competition exerts on the employed workers forces them to submit to overwork and subjects them to the dictates of capital. The condemnation of one part of the working class to enforced idleness by the overwork of the other part and vice versa becomes a means of enriching the individual capitalists. This is a very interesting kind of thing. Um, even in times of unemployment, in, in times of unemployment, it's very interesting to see how many capitalists insist on the employed workers uh, working overtime. Now, you would, in a rational system, you would say, "Well, okay, there's a lot of surplus labor out there. You know, we'll employ them." No, the capitalists at times like that will actually take their workers and say, "You want to be unemployed?" If you don't want to be unemployed, then you've got to volunteer to do overtime. And actually, capitalists start to push real hard on overtime. The more unemployment there is, you would think you would think it would be the other way around, but you can see what capitalists are doing. They're actually paying their workers less. So there are various ways in which the, the relative surplus population acts as a disciplinary force. Uh, in relationship to, to, to the, the, the time of, uh, uh, in which the labor is employed. And then also, as he says on the next page, the general movements of wages are exclusively regulated by the expansion and contraction of the Industrial Reserve Army. And this, in turn, corresponds to the periodic alternations of the industrial cycle. So that the Reserve Army puts pressure on wages, it puts pressure on overtime, it puts pressure on the discipline of, of the workers. And this, uh, then he summarizes on 792 as follows. Industrial Reserve Army, during the periods of stagnation and average prosperity, weighs down the active army of workers. During the periods of overproduction and feverish activity, it puts a curb on their pretensions. That is... It becomes a regulator of class struggle. The relative surplus population is therefore the background 
against which the law of demand and supply of labour does its work. It confines the field of action of this law to the limits absolutely convenient to capital's drive to exploit and dominate the workers. Then he goes on to say uh, the following, that the mechanism of capitalist production takes care that the absolute increase of capital is not accompanied by a corresponding rise in the general demand for labour. The apologist calls this a compensation for the misery, the sufferings, the possible death of the displaced workers. The demand for labour is not identical with the increase of capital, nor is supply of labour identical with the increase of the working class. It is not a case of two independent forces working on each other. The dice are loaded. Capital acts on both sides at once. Supply and demand of labour is actually regulated by capital both in terms of the demand for labour, okay, at the same time as the supply of labour. Now, this is a violation of the laws of exchange. You're supposed, in exchange, for like to be, you know, too independent. But no, capital controls both the supply by the production of an industrial reserve army and the demand. If its accumulation on the one hand increases the demand for labour, it increases on the other the supply of workers by setting them free, while at the same time the pressure of the unemployed compels those who are employed to furnish more labour, and therefore makes the supply of labour to a certain extent independent of the supply of workers. The movement of the law of supply and demand of labour on this basis completes the despotism of capital. Capital rules over both the demand and the supply. There is no independent labour market. Labour capital controls both sides of the labour market. Thus, as soon as the workers learn the secret of why it happens that the more they work, the more alien wealth they produce, and that the more the productivity of their labour increases, the more does their very function as a means for the valorization of capital become precarious. And there's a lot of language here about precariousness, by the way. So this idea that only now have we come into a world of precarious labour, oh, well, all precarious, all labour was precarious as far as Marx was concerned. As soon as they discover that the degree of intensity of the competition among themselves depends wholly on the pressure of the relative surplus population, as soon as by setting up trade unions, and this is the first time, trade, and about the only time that trade unions get mentioned in this whole uh, book, which is kind of interesting, but as soon as, by setting up trade unions, etc., they try to organise planned cooperation between the employed and the unemployed in order to obviate or to weaken the ruinous effect of this natural law of capitalist production on their class, so soon does capital and its sycophant political economy cry out at the infringement of the eternal and, so to speak, sacred law of supply and demand. Every combination between employed and unemployed disturbs the pure action of this law. In other words, as soon as workers get together and say collectively, we can respond to this condition in the labour market where capital has despotic control of both supply and demand, then the formation of a trade union is seen as an infringement against the free operation of free markets. So Marx is, again saying, Marx is again saying, 
this idea of free market is kind of it's nonsense. Uh, it's 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 biased in this in this very specific way. So that's the third section. So we've got a different model of accumulation here. One in which technological dynamism, production of the Industrial Reserve Army is going on, and, and capital is creating its own supply conditions through the management of the Industrial Reserve Army. So then Marx turns to the question, all right, what happens to this Industrial Reserve Army? What's life like? in the Industrial Reserve Army. And this is where the book really comes down to, okay, what's the general law of capital accumulation about? So he starts off by saying, okay, you can divide the Industrial Reserve Army into three parts. The floating, which is people who are intermittently in and out of the labor force because you know they get fired because of technological change, technologically induced unemployment, all those kinds of things. Then there's the category, the latent, that is, group in the population that has not yet been proletarianized. In Marx's time, well, there was a huge peasant population out there. In our time, well, there was a huge peasant population in China. Uh, that was the big latent uh, force. Uh, women and children, uh, petty bourgeois uh, shop owners, in other words, there's a whole group of people in the population that have not been proletarianized, and the latent group is very uh, significant. Uh, and, and at any particular time, you can sort of say, okay, where's the latent group? And how can they be mobilized? Uh, in the 1960s, for example, when there were labor shortages within the major centers of capital accumulation, uh, Instead of uh, creating an industrial reserve army by, by technological dynamism that threw a lot of people out of work, which, by the way, in the 1960s might have been difficult to do because of trade union power and might have induced a sort of a, actually a revolutionary movement and all the rest of it, capital said, okay, we're going to go for a latent. We're going to mobilize the latent. Where was the latent? Well, uh, the Germans said kind of a German capitalist said, okay, there's all those people in Turkey. We bring in the Turks. The French brought in the Maghrebians. The British brought in people from the continent. The 1960s, there was a reform of the Immigration Acts in this country, which suddenly gave up the quota system and allowed uh, the import of all kinds of labor from all around the world in this country. In other words, the mobilization of the latent reserve became a very important strategy in the 1960s to control the dynamics of class struggle. And because it was about controlling the dynamics of class struggle, it generated, of course, a great deal of hostility to immigration. So by the end of the 1960s, you have kind of anti-immigrant movements going on and people saying, why is the French state subsidizing them, these Maghrebians? Why is the German state subsidizing uh, these uh, folk from Turkey? Why are the Swedes concentrating, you know, subsidizing these people from uh, Portugal and, and, and Yugoslavia? Why, you know, why is all this going on? Uh, and, and conventional working classes started to become rather anti-immigrant, uh, and uh, that then led to all kinds of uh, social consequences. But then think of the latent reserve over the last you know, 30 or 40 years. About a billion people have joined the global wage labor force in the last 30 years. Where were they from? Well, China came in. 
That was in itself huge, just in itself. Women were mobilized into the labor force, which in, 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 mass, in mass ways. Uh, the Soviet uh, empire collapses, and so you suddenly got all of you know, Eastern Europe and Russia and, 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 and the like. I mean, a huge latent labor force, which was mobilized in the 1980s and 1990s and so on up to now, so, so the latent was very, very important, and 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 the latent that latent labor force did uh, what Marx talks about in here. It disciplined the existing labor forces. It disciplined them to the point where you know a once powerful, once powerful trade union movements in Europe and North America uh, are, are kind of uh, disempowered, and and uh, you know all kinds of. You know, labor controls are are are, are set, set in motion. So the latent, it's important to sort of think about the history of the latent labor force. It's also important to think about, you know, the creation of unemployment. Uh, the mess that occurred at the end of the 1970s, when in fact there was a deliberate creation of unemployment in what was called the Volcker shock and the, and the Reagan, uh, you know, disciplining of, of the air traffic controllers union and all kinds of things like that. So in the early 1980s, there was a disciplining of labor that was going on internally at the same time as latent labor forces were being mobilized from abroad. Capital was starting to move abroad to where the labor forces were. So you then find this whole kind of relation to... But this is all about an industrial reserve army. Where is it? What's it doing? You know, where can it be mobilized? What are the tactics of mobilization? How much state power is involved in that? You know, all kinds of things of that sort. And, and it seems to me Marx is opening up here these kind of questions to look at in terms of the history of capital accumulation. Throughout its history, capital has always had to have a, a, this industrial reserve army. And that is, I think, one of the crucial uh, features. Um, and the latent is, you know, in, in some respects, I think, capital would prefer uh, to deal with a latent force than uh, a floating. The advantage of a floating labor force is, of course, that it, it has certain skills and, and doesn't have to be trained into, you know, labor processes and the like, so there's certain advantages of, of having a floating labor force. But a floating labor force is also difficult because uh, they tend to be a bit organized, they tend to have a good idea of what they're doing, and they tend to be resentful of all sorts of things. So uh, the, the creation of Industrial Reserve Army by deliberate creation of unemployment, uh, as occurred in the early 1980s, uh, deliberately uh, in uh, Thatcher's Britain and also in Reagan's America, you see, see that going on. But it's only a short-term thing, and if it lasts too long, there'll be internal discontent and all kinds of hell will break loose, and so you, know, you look then for the latent uh, as much as possible. The third category he talks about is the stagnant population, which is uh, uh, workers who, who have eff effectively been either driven out of the labor force or lost their interest in, in working and, and, and don't want to be bothered anymore. It's a, it's a sort of stagnant sector. Um, Marx sometimes referred to it as a sort of lumpen proletariat. I don't like that term, but 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 it's there. 
And finally, he says, the lowest sediment of the relative surface population dwells in the sphere of pauperism. That is, those people who are kind of uh, uh, sickly, the widows. Pauperism, he says, is the hospital of the active labor army and the dead weight of the industrial reserve army. Its production is included in that of the relative surplus population. Its necessity is implied by their necessity. Along with the surplus population, pauperism forms a condition of capitalist production and of the capitalist development wealth. It forms part of the necessary costs of capitalist production. But capital usually knows how to transfer these from its own shoulders to those of the working class and the petty bourgeoisie. The role of pauperism is that you take out uh, this layer of the population and it basically is a dead weight of the Industrial Reserve Army. It curbs the ambitions of the Industrial Reserve Army. You point to people, you know, the homeless people on the street, and that can happen to you. This is the kind of thing that can happen to you uh, unless you, you, know, you, you play good and play by the rules and do what we want you to do. So this brings him to this the conclusion. The more extensive, well, put this way, the greater the social wealth, the functioning capital, the extent and energy of its growth, and therefore also the greater the absolute mass of the proletariat and the productivity of its labor, the greater is the industrial reserve army. The same causes which develop the expansive power of capital also develop the labor power at its disposal. The relative mass of the Industrial Reserve Army thus increases with the potential energy of wealth. But the greater this Reserve Army in proportion to the active labor army, the greater is the mass of consolidated surplus population, whose misery is in inverse ratio to the amount of torture it has to undergo in the form of labor. The more extensive, finally, the pauperized sections of the working class and the Industrial Reserve Army the greater is official pauperism. Like all other laws, oh, sorry, this, he says, is the absolute general law of capitalist, gen, uh, of capitalist accumulation. So this is why I say the whole of capital is really about this general law, the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation, which is the production of an industrial reserve army, the production of poverty, the production of you know, conditions of not only working but of living, which are close to being intolerable, because that is the basis upon which capital accumulation rests and the production of wealth rests. Like all other laws, says Marx, it is modified in its working by many circumstances, the analysis of which does not concern us here. But I would still submit that this general kind of characterization is very characteristic of our present condition. I mean, what's remarkable in many ways about this is we've got the huge production of wealth and concentration of wealth at the same time as we've got the production of an industrial reserve army of impoverishment, of pauperism. Uh, I've just come back, I was in Greece for a week. The whole history of what happened to Greece in, 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 a society, in, in Greece itself, the top 1% has increased its wealth by something like 20% since the crisis. Wealth has been drained from Greece. Austerity, austerity, austerity. 
say the European Union. And the lesson of Greece is, to all the working classes around the world, if you don't play ball, you're going to be like Greece. And it's actually it's very interesting because, you know, I've said this before, the United States has its own Greece in Puerto Rico. Industrial Reserve Army, perhaps the Industrial Reserve Army. And it is put under conditions of austerity and it's put under conditions of abysmal living conditions. And this is what, what, what wealth is based upon and this is what capital accumulation is based upon. And of course, the explanation of why Greece is Greece and why Puerto Rico is Puerto Rico is both cultural. You know, so the popular view is lazy Puerto Ricans and lazy idle Greeks, you know, all over the German press, that kind of thing. You don't have to probe very far in this country to get that kind of reaction either. Or it's just policy mistakes and indebtedness, this kind of thing. No. What Marx is saying is conditions of that sort that you see in Puerto Rico and you see in, in Greece are absolutely essential to the functioning of a capitalist mode of production. A capitalist mode of production cannot function without producing that. And it's really very interesting that, you know, when all this money started pouring out from the very ultra-rich in, in France to rebuild Notre Dame, and suddenly all of the gilets jaunes were saying, where the hell did all that wealth come from? Why, have, why are we living under austerity? And why are we having to live under the regulations and, and, and conditions of almost pauperism when all this wealth is there and can be easily spilled out in, this, you know, in a second? They just sign the checks and that's it. So, what does this lead to? So he, Marx gives then this general characterization of capital, which is a sort of famous passage on 798-79. The higher the productivity of labor, the greater is the pressure of the workers on the means of employment. The more precarious, therefore, becomes the conditions of their existence, namely the sale of their own labor power for the increase of alien wealth, or in other words, the self-valorization of capital. The fact that the means of production and the productivity of labor increase more rapidly than the productive population expresses itself. Therefore, under capitalism in the inverse form that the working population always increases more rapidly than the valorization requirements of capital. We earlier saw that within the capitalist system, all methods for raising the social productivity of labor are put into effect at the cost of the individual worker that all means for the development of production undergo a dialectical inversion so that they become means of domination and exploitation of the producers, that is, the workers. They distort the worker into a fragment of man. They degrade him to the level of an appendage of a machine. They destroy the actual content of his labor by turning it into a torment. They alienate from him the intellectual potentialities of the labor process in the same proportion as science is incorporated in it as an independent power. They deform the conditions under which it, he works, subject him during the labor process to a despotism the more hateful for its meanness. They transform his lifetime into working time and drag his wife and child beneath the wheels of the juggernaut of capital. But all methods for the production of surplus value are at the same time methods of accumulation and every extension of accumulation becomes conversely a means for the development of these methods. It follows, therefore, that in proportion as capital accumulates, the situation of the worker, be his payment high or low, must grow worse. 
Finally, the law which always holds the relative surplus population or an industrial reserve army in equilibrium with the extent and energy of accumulation rivets the work of the capital more firmly than the wedges of Hephaestus held Prometheus to the rock. It makes an accumulation of misery a necessary condition corresponding to the accumulation of wealth. The accumulation of wealth at one pole is therefore at the same time accumulation of misery, the torment of labor, slavery, ignorance, brutalization and moral degradation at the opposite pole, i.e. on the side of the class that produces its own product as capital. So this is the conclusion, if you like, that this is what capital is about. But this is the famous thesis of the increasing immiseration of the working class, the increasing impoverishment, the reduction of large segments of the worker, working class to, to, to conditions of pauperism. But remember, this is not a prediction. It is a contingent statement. And it's contingent upon the assumptions. In volume two of Capital, you'll find another argument being made. That if this is the only way in which capital can work, then there can be no market. The market disappears because the workers are not in a position to exercise any demand for, for, the, for the increasing product created. So you can see immediately that this process that Marx is talking about here, if it is the only process of relevance, will produce a condition under which capital will collapse because it will have no market. And remember the first chapter of Capital, Marx kind of says, if there is no market, there is no value. If you cannot sell the product, there, you know, no matter how much labor has been incorporated in a product, there's no value. So what Marx is kind of doing here is to give us a one-sided analysis. And therefore, it's interesting to take that analysis and say, well, okay, that is part of the story of capital. It's a very important part because we can see phases in which the production of a relative surplus population, the mobilization of latent reserve armies, all those kinds of things, the pressure which is put on a working population by the unemployed, the pressure which is put on wages, the pressure is, which is put on the intensity of exploitation of labor and all the rest of it, all, of that, all those pressures, they're all there. And they are being mobilized to this day. And in certain parts of the world, if you read this, you're kind of saying, and you're sitting in Bangladesh, or you're sitting in uh, Laos, or you're sitting in uh, Vietnam, or, or, or even southern China until recently, you would say that this is, this is exactly what is happening. A latent reserve has been mobilized, it's pushed its way, uh, and, and, and it's been reduced uh, to conditions of, of labor which, uh, and living which are absolutely appalling. So it's a one-sided story. It's interesting, at the end of Volume 2, Marx talks about the need to encourage rational consumption on the part of the worker. 
Rational consumption is that consumption which is necessary for the worker to engage in in order to stabilize the accumulation of capital. In order for that rational consumption to occur, you have to give the workers more wages. So you raise their wages and, and then the market can, can function. So the volume two story is rather, rather different, very different. And I think it's interesting to say, well, the volume two story is about the stabilization of capital by the management of a wage rate which is sufficiently high to create the effective demand to absorb the increasing product because accumulation of capital is the accumulation of more and more commodities. And who's going to consume those commodities? First off, they have to have the wants, needs and desires, but then beyond that, they have to have the means to pay for them. So the volume two story then says manage the wage level in such a way as, as, as to create the sufficient effective demand to absorb the value which is being produced. That's the volume two story. But you can't do that if you're in this volume one analysis. And I think it's very interesting just to look at the history of capital and ask the question, to what degree are we functioning according to the volume one analysis or the volume two analysis? My view is that in the 1960s we were tending to do demand management and, and the question of, of aggregate effective demand by at least giving a certain segment of the labor force privileged wage levels and all the rest of it, unionization and all the rest of it, that that was a very important uh, sort of phase in which the volume two story was, was being followed. The trouble with the volume two story is the workers started to get much more ambitious and much more empowered, and they needed to be disempowered. So in the 1970s, they get disempowered, and you go into a volume one story. And we're now firmly in a volume one story with serious problems about management of effective demand. And so where's the effective demand going to come from? When we've, you know, and so we have these claims, well, let's put the you know, minimum wage up to $15 an hour or something like that, then, then, then demand will recover and you know, off, off we go back into a volume. Actually, the global capital right now, China's been operating on a sort of the basis of a volume two story. Uh, the rest of the world with austerity politics and all the rest of it has been really working on a volume one story. So you've got both stories together uh, actually right now. Okay, this leads then into section five on illustrations of the general law of capitalist accumulation. Now, I, you know, there's a lot of materials here, and I'm, I'm not going to go over it in, in, in any great detail. But what I wanted to, to point out is that Marx is not only interested in the positionality of what happens to the worker at the point of production, here he's doing two things. He's, he's talking about the conditions of social reproduction. And the conditions of social reproduction of the Industrial Reserve Army in particular. Because if the, the, the Industrial Reserve Army has absolutely nothing, and all, they all die of starvation, then it's not going to perform its role. So there's been a big problem throughout the history of capitalists to how to manage 
the Industrial Reserve Army, how to give it enough resources to keep it alive and able to come back in, you don't, into the labor force. If, if they all end up in, 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 in the sort of pauper category, then they're not going to be very effective uh, as an effective, uh, as, as an industrial reserve army. But nevertheless, the incentive comes with the pangs of hunger. Uh, Marx points about it this way on 811, he says, for example, the intimate connection between the pangs of hunger suffered by the most industrious layers of the working class and the extravagant consumption, coarse or refined of the rich, for which capitalist accumulation is the basis, is only uncovered when the economic laws are known. It is otherwise with the housing situation. Every unprejudiced observer sees that the great the greater the centralization of the means of production, the greater is the corresponding concentration of workers within a given space. And therefore, the more quickly capitalist accumulation takes place, and the more miserable the housing situation of the working class. Improvements of towns which accompany the increase of wealth, such as the demolition of badly built districts, the erection of palaces to house banks, warehouses, etc., the widening of streets for business traffic, for luxury carriages, for the introduction of tramways, obviously drive the poor away into an even worse and more crowded corners. On the other hand, everyone knows that the dearness of houses stands as inverse ratio to their quality, and that the mines of misery are exploited by house speculators with more profit and at less cost than the mines of Potosi were ever exploited. Potosi is the great silver mines. And, you know, he has a lot of stuff in here from the reports of sanitation workers and what living conditions are, are like, uh, and the reports of public health, uh, and the condition of urban dwellings. Uh, Marx quotes somebody called Dr. Simon. Although my official point of view is one exclusively physical, common humanity requires that the other aspect of this evil should not be ignored. In its highest degrees, Overcrowding almost necessarily involves such negation of all delicacy, such unclean confusion of bodies and bodily functions, such exposure of animal and sexual nakedness as is rather bestial than human. To be subject to these influences is a degradation which must become deeper and deeper for those on whom it is, continues to work. To children who are born under its curse, it must often be the very baptism into infamy. Now, Marx is just quoting here... Uh, the factory and the, the public health uh, uh, inspectors uh, about things, some somewhat Victorian ideas about things, but nevertheless, it's about the, the, the living conditions of de total degradation. Uh, and then Marx goes on, the better part of the working class, together with the small shopkeepers and other elements of the lower middle class, falls in London more and more under the curse of those vile housing conditions in proportion as improvements, and with them the dem demolition of old streets and houses advance. Gentrification is not new. Uh, urban renewal and uh, improvements and all the rest of it, and slum clearance and so on, uh, and, and the raising of rents. Rents have become so heavy that few laboring men can afford more than one room. There is almost no house property in London that is not overburdened with the number of middlemen then goes on about the price of land in London and what happens 
uh, to living conditions. So there's a lot of work of this kind in this and this, which where Marx puts together uh, many of these quotations about, from public health inspectors and 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 the like. Uh, I think that there are two other themes in here which are, you know, terribly uh, important. Uh, one one is the the notion of a continual immigration through which the system is continuously uh, replenished so that the importation of, uh, uh, of, of of people from the countryside becomes to replace uh, those people who end up in the in the hospital of the industrial reserve army becomes important the other thing is that Marx also introduces into here the question of the Irish uh, and and uh, uh, the way in which capital uses uh, both ethnic and religious distinctions uh, to divide and rule uh, upon many elements in the population and the the, the conditions of the Irish uh, posed all sorts of uh, uh, problems uh, for uh, the working class at the time to try to uh, for, for capital to try to find a way uh, to, to manage the industrial reserve army at the same time as it uh, disem disempowered it so um, there's there's a, a, a very interesting kind of uh, uh, argument which is also made about the living standards, and, and, and this occurred in, in a couple of times, and we've also seen it in, in, in this country. Um, there's a point where Marx points out that the, 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 the public health inspectors are saying that uh, the people in jail uh, had better living conditions and better diet uh, than the people in the workhouses, uh, the official pauper population, and better, better also than, than the lower levels of the working class out on the street. And, and actually, there are examples in this country of people wanting to go back into jail, uh, having got out, because uh, it, it actually turned out they were better fed in jail than they were likely to be outside. Uh, and, and I think this, 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 this um, the argument that then gets made is that there has to be uh, a welfare system that is sufficiently, uh, how, how should we say, uh, uh, sufficiently vicious that people are not given too much in the way of support because otherwise they'll refuse to go and engage in wage labor. Now this is a right-wing uh, argument that unemployment is actually caused by social welfare because social welfare if it's reasonably you know it's a reasonable level then then it sets the level at which people refuse to go to work and people's refusal to go to work depends very much upon them being given adequate welfare so cutting welfare becomes a right-wing mantra and it's argued that cutting welfare actually reduces unemployment because 
if the welfare level is so low that you do almost anything to get a, have a job, then you're going to the labor force at extremely low wages. And, and again, Marx is talking here about uh, the way in which pauperism sets a certain kind of level and, and becomes the basis upon which accumulation of capital and exploitation of living labor and production and all those things can operate. And it is therefore the, the, the basis of the, of the creation and production of wealth. And the more poverty there is, the greater the wealth. And it's very interesting that you know, since the 1970s, effectively the disciplining of the working classes has meant that more and more poverty is around, even though you know, there are certain measures which say poverty is less and less, but that's mainly because of China. And this, this then produces uh, this uh, you know, situation in which the production of poverty is absolutely critical to the accumulation of wealth. And those things go together. And that was what was so, I think, uh, stunning with, uh, in, 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 the in the French case. And it was kind of, a, it, you know, Macron comes in, and one of the big reasons why France has not had the same levels of inequality as other, almost all the other major countries is because they've never been able to revise all the labor laws to cre create greater flexibility in, in, in hiring and firing of labor. Macron comes in and says, that's what we're going to do. And this is, this is the big step towards creating greater and greater inequality. And, and, and so Macron comes in and does that. He cuts taxes on the, for the rich. He, he does austerity for, for, for the of welfare services. And it's a classic neoliberal kind of, kind of program. He puts that all in place. And, and we start then to see suddenly these enormous extrusions of wealth around, you know, okay, you need 200 million euros to rebuild Notre Dame, here's 200 million euros. Uh, now, it is interesting that, that all of the... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a merchant capitalist class there that's the wealthy class. They're not, not direct uh, produ producers. So this connection which Marx is making between the production of industrial reserve army and the accumulation of capital, the production of poverty and the necessity of that poverty to, to increase uh, is crucial, it seems to me, to interpret uh, exactly what is happening in terms of this dynamism of, uh, of, of contemporary capitalism. Uh, and this idea of precarity as something that's new you know, plainly it's not because there's a large segment of the Industrial Reserve Army that is precarious in Marx's time, and, and Marx clearly saw it as such. And even the regularly employed laborers have a, an a element of precarity. They can be thrown out by, by, by uh, dynamism. So this is the general law of capitalist accumulation. Uh, the, the, the role of uh, labor is, is, is really what what it's about, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And, and I think that all of these illustrative materials back here are worth reading, uh, if, if only to get some sort of sense of the vast array of reports which are coming out on the conditions of, of, of working and living uh, in, in Britain 
at the time when Marx was writing. Uh, the idea that this has all gone away, well, to some degree it has gone away, to, but that's because you needed to do something in the volume two uh, equilibrium condition. Uh, but nevertheless, you'll find plenty of evidence of this. And, and by the way, this idea that you get this production of wealth at the same time as you get the production of poverty is not unique uh, to... Uh, to Marx, and I've always found it very interesting that that passage where he talks about accumulation of wealth at one pole is is, is resting upon the accumulation of misery, degradation, or rest of another pole, that of working class. You can actually find almost that same phrasing in Hegel, in Hegel's philosophy of right, and 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 it's interesting when you read Hegel's philosophy of right. Marx wrote a critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, but he never actually quoted all of that. Uh, I think some of this sensibility of what's happening to workers is actually modelled on, 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 on Hegel's philosophy of right, for those of you who are interested in the Hegel collection. So I'll stop here and see what you might be making of this and, and how you might, might see it and any questions you might have. Have you got the um, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't kind of getting caught in a contradiction or confusion but so the whole thing that machines don't create value and centralization doesn't create capital it just sort of shifts it towards fewer capitalists what's the like what would make um the demand for labor decline is it just technical technolo technological dynamism meaning that they can create more with less workers, faster, because it's been centralized? Yeah, well, um, part, part of the, the story here is the um, Marx is generally speaking, thinking about technological innovation, which is labor saving. So labor saving technologies come in and it means you need fewer workers. Uh, and large, um, for, for, for example, uh, in, when, I went, when I moved to Baltimore in 1969, there's a steel works, I, I've forgotten exactly, maybe 37,000 people employed. Uh, by the time you get to 1990, there's 5,000 people employed and they're producing the same amount of steel. Uh, the story in the auto plants is similar. Uh, large areas of manufacturing, 
what we've seen is uh, robotics and automation and all the rest of it. So that uh, Detroit is presumably, you know, I don't know whether it is, but it's producing, still producing a hell of a lot of cars. Uh, but in terms of employment, we know it's it's nowhere, you know, and so you've got the, the Detroit kind kind of problem. So if you if you look at the history of manufacturing over the last thirty or forty years, uh, what you'd see is uh, a huge increase in productivity. Uh, a decrease of the uh, variable capital, the de decrease in the number of people employed, uh, and and uh, at the same time, you're not you're, you're still producing the same amount of of cars, if not more. So so I think uh, uh, that's the. Now, when, when you're doing that, that means, of course, the, the price of the individual cars comes down, or should, should come down, uh, relatively speaking, although the, the cars get more sophisticated and so, you know, all sorts of things go on of that sort. Uh, but that is, is what, what's happening. And so if you looked at something and said, okay, what's the value composition of capital uh, in the automobile industry? And you would say, well, it's it's uh, a tremendous amount of uh, constant capital, uh, both in terms of raw materials that make the car, but also the infrastructures which are required and the robotic instruments and all the rest of it. So you've got a lot of constant capital being being consumed and a lot of constant capital used in the production process. Uh, and uh, the variable capital is... Is much lower, so you would take the C, C over V ratio and say the the, the value of composition of capital has risen very distinctly uh, over the last thirty or forty years in the auto industry, or in the steel industry, or anywhere else. And you know, there's all this kind of discussion in this country about uh, you know loss of manufacturing jobs and the, the general tendency is to sort of blame it all on offshoring but only about 40 percent of the job losses I think are attributable to going to China or offshoring uh, about 60 uh, percent of the job losses are due to technological change and of course we're now beginning to see technological change coming into the service sector uh, and uh, we may well see, in the same way we saw deindustrialization and loss of manufacturing jobs, uh, we're likely to see a, a, a similar round of loss of uh, service jobs uh, through technological uh, dynamism, technological change. Now, the answer is, you know, why, why, would, why would capital do that? Well, partly it's the pressures of competition that if my productivity is higher than yours and I'm in competition with you, that, that's it. Uh, uh, it also uh, has to do with some of the internal dynamics of cost savings internally. But, you know, so there are all sorts of re reasons why you engage in the technological, uh, technological dynamism. 
But again, it comes back to this notion that machines are not, none of this is a, is a source of value, but it is a source of, surplus, of relative surplus value. Uh, and that, that's the important, uh, the, the important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. He's 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 he's, he's saying yeah, to a degree that um, you know economies of scale become terribly important. So one of the arguments he's making here is economies of scale uh, allow uh, a much greater productivity of a, of a labor force, and so you can reduce the labor force and maintain your production, or just keep the labor force and expand your production. Uh, so, so economies of scale are important. So, through centralization, uh, you can uh, uh, economize in all sorts of ways. And, but the the, uh, the initiative to uh, centralize through mergers and acquisitions and so on has a lot to do then, of course, with asset stripping that you consolidate and asset strip and do all those kinds of things. Marx is not obviously talking about that, but it's not hard. To insert all of that kind of activity into uh, the argument he's making. Yeah. yeah. We have a question from online that's oh, okay. on that point. Um, what will happen? This is from Behan from Berlin. What will happen if sophisticated and widespread artificial intelligence? enters the stage of accumulation and exploitation strategies of capital, will it promote or hinder the emergence of a classless society in the future? Um, well, innovations of this kind always carry with them uh, opportunities and possibilities. But as Marx points out about machines in general, and th there's this ambiguity, of course, he has about you know, do we need machine technology or machine production uh, for a socialist society? Uh, what we know is that machine production is being mobilized for the purposes of capital accumulation. And uh, my, in exactly the same way that uh, the new technologies and flexible specialization and all of that was mobilized in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, it had the potential to create new possibilities for uh, uh, associated workforces to better manage and, 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 and self-manage, but it was actually used by capital largely to uh, accumulate more wealth and power and in terms of the capitalist class. So my guess is about artificial intelligence that while it can, it has the possibility to be utilized very, very directly, uh, within a socialist project, that the development of artificial intelligence is not going to be is is, is not going to be organised around a socialist pro project. Uh, it's going to be uh, mobilised around the protection of uh, uh, structures of class domination and class management and all the rest of it, and it's going to be organised around the requirements of uh, a capitalist class, unless. Uh, there is a movement that kind of says, no, we're going to mobilize it in some other way. Uh, at the moment, I don't see that movement. Um, I see kind of, uh, uh, you know, obviously individuals who would be concerned or doing that kind of thing, but you're going to have to need 
a mass movement to dispossess uh, the Koch brothers and the Waltons and uh, the, all the other kind of uh, super capitalist class who are essentially are, are, are if you like, uh, uh, have the power over the state apparatus. Uh, we're going to have to deal with the bondholders that have the power of the state apparatus uh, and push it in a different direction. Uh, on this, I think it's very, very interesting at the same time as Macron was doing all this stuff about, you know, trying to increase uh, the wealth of the of the capitalist classes, uh, China has uh, is is dedicated still to the idea of the elimination of poverty. And I found it interesting to read about uh, President Xi going to these, you know, poor communes. Uh, he was. Uh, when he was 16 years old, he was sent to a commune in a very poor area of China and worked there for seven years during the Cultural Revolution, so he knows what poverty is all about. He went back there and kind of said to the people that we're going to you know, really change life there. And I, there was a story in the Financial Times two days ago about shrinking cities in China, which is a very unusual thing, but in Manchurian region where you've got underdevelopment and deindustrialization going on, uh, Xi turned up and kind of said, okay, we're going to actually uh, eliminate poverty. So here you have a French president who's actually creating poverty in order to create wealth, and you have uh, a Chinese president who's committed, at least in principle, to the attempt to eradicate uh, uh, poverty. So again, artificial intelligence, the Chinese are using it. They could use it. Maybe they can use it in ways which are going to be progressive. Who knows? Uh, I'm not confident at all uh, that it's going to be used in this country in a way that's progressive, and I'm not confident at all that it's going to be used in in, in Europe uh, in a way which is uh, uh, progressive. So I think the answer to the question of, you know, will the, will the technology do this or that? No, the technology won't do anything. It depends who's going to use it and for what purpose. And I think uh, that's where the big struggle lies in terms of uh, the hegemony of a capitalist class that is uh, very much in control right now. It's essentially a, an oligarchy or a kleptocracy or whatever you want to call it, but it's a very small group of, uh, 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 of, of power centers, uh, which uh, is essentially dominating a lot of the applications of, uh, of, of techniques of this kind. Hello. Hello. Uh, well, what I was about to ask was what you were talking about just now, about the, the, the use of technology for social change. And I think that it's really important that you mentioned. I know there are a few groups already in the world, but they just very spread out over the world. But, you know, having to create an artificial intelligence is not really hard these days and create a machine is not really hard either. So uh, I think that the left really can pull up something like a small project to produce things. For example, there's things that are really low-hanging fruits. The free production of food, for example, is not a really complicated project. And probably there's something that the left can do someday. And there's a couple of groups over the world that we are with. I part of one of these, by the way. <laughs> we always talk about these kind of things. And we always complain because we all feel, feel leftists. But we always complain. But in the left, no one is really... They, 
willing to do something concrete, like creating this thing here, and the community has a lot of power, we can create this kind of machine, we can create this artificial intelligence here, we can create this app, but it's really hard to find a dedicated group for this. But uh, what was a question before is just uh, coming to you that yeah. yes, there are people, yeah. we, there are people that we are worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. We are worried that the means of production uh, are much more improved with artificial intelligence and robotics. But the concentration of wealth now is not only accelerating the introduction of robotics, like Amazon or Walmart, for example, which are really big actors in this in this thing, but um, also uh, the displacement of workers with, with what we think are a class in extinction, yeah, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. So, well, there are really people thinking about this today, and hopefully someday the left will rise with a nice team of engineers and yeah, programmers yeah, great idea. to I do something. It. Yeah, yeah. I, I will hope to have this yeah. someday. Okay. So that's okay. it. Oh, Thank great. you. <laughs> I was wondering how you think about Brexit. Oh, I try not to think about it. <laughs> I, you know, it's uh, that, that is a total mess right now. I mean, it would have it would have made sense uh, if uh, there had been a political project. I mean, a case I think a strong case was being made by at least some of the people I know that, uh, given the degree to which uh, the European Union was totally locked into a very neoliberal repressive project that uh, the only way to get out of it was to uh, sever relations with Europe, but that would presume that, that uh, there would be a, a, a political movement in place in Britain that was actually going to uh, pursue some alternative uh, strategy to the neoliberal kind of configuration uh, that uh, was has, had dominated the European Union from the Maastricht Accord onwards. So there was an argument along those lines, but since there was, since that certainly didn't happen, and most people who voted for Brexit were not thinking about that either, um, then the argument for Brexit was not good, and it probably would have been a better idea uh, in to stay in the European Union and try and reform the European Union, but you can see how difficult it is uh, to reform the European Union. Uh, it's it's a, a very neoliberal structured organization, uh, and uh, the only thing it's sponsoring right now seems to me a rise of uh, right-wing uh, nationalism uh, around the place and, uh, uh, you know, accompanied by anti-immigrant fervor and all the rest of it. So about Brexit, I, I think it was, a, it was a major lost opportunity to either say, well, okay, we're going to stay in the European Union and we're going to fight to reform it, or we're going to get out and we're going to autonomously develop an alternative uh, kind of uh, regulatory form uh, and structure, which is not going to uh, rest on the kind of neoliberal principles that led the European Union to inflict the kinds of damage it did on southern Europe and Greece in particular. Uh, I mean, the European Union was supposedly 
set up originally as a sort of organization in which there would be mutual aid uh, from one part to the other. When Greece got into trouble, well, okay, they were partly to blame, but when they got into trouble, there was no mutual aid forthcoming. And in fact, uh, the whole Eurozone mainly benefited Germany and uh, uh, did not benefit uh, hardly anybody else. Uh, so, you know, uneven geographical development was uh, in, involved in, 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 in that. So I, I think there's, you know, there was an alternative politics was possible, but, but uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near the coming to the surface as a, as a, a majority, majoritarian opinion. Um, I was wondering if you could comment a bit on um, the different examples that Marx gives of transforming land use. Um, the ex um, one of, one I was of wondering if you could comment a bit on um, <laughs> the different examples that Marx gives of transforming land use. Um, the ex that was very disturbing. Um, <laughs> uh, the the one example that he gives of the closed villages on the land and people being pushed out of right. them and having to commute from these open villages. Yeah. Um, and then also the example of Ireland, the transformation of yeah. arable land into pasture right. land right. Um, and how that created pressure for depopulation. I was wondering uh, what your thoughts were on those sections. No, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the, all of the materials which are assembled in this last part, uh, you know, get into all kinds of details of that kind. And I think that, uh, it, you know, when you sort of say, where do I think about it? I think, oh, well, they were doing it back then and we, we haven't stopped doing it. We're still doing that kind of stuff. Um, maybe in slightly different uh, way. Uh, I think the, the Irish question which crops up here is, uh, I think, uh, was, was very interestingly handled by uh, Marx and Engels. Initially, they, they, their position was that the, uh, the importation of Irish labor was uh, actually undermining and undercutting uh, the conditions of work of the, uh, of, the, of the British working class and that they, in some ways they were echoing a certain kind of hostility towards uh, Irish labor, uh, which uh, was sort of commonplace in, in Britain at the, at the time. Uh, but they then uh, switched, uh, um, you know, before Capital was written to a rather different position, which was that uh, the condition of, uh, our, you know, labor in Ireland was, the, was a, a very important uh, uh, issue to to militate about and 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 become involved with and i actually rather like the very final part of this chapter where marx angles marx kind of says well you know to the degree that uh, ireland became a, a pasture for to raise uh, you know uh cattle and all the rest of it for, for for english english landlords and 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 the irish themselves go to uh, go to Ireland. They there become uh, the you know good Republicans and uh, start to form a, 
become part of a republic that's going to you know, really threaten British hegemony. Uh, and uh, I, th I thought it was a sort of little interesting twist at the end where, where uh, the movement of the Irish population to the United States, uh, the republicanism of the United States that Marx had some faith in, uh, uh, you know, critical faith in, if you want to put it that way, uh, and that uh, you know the U.S. might uh, then uh, be a real challenge to 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 to, to, to British uh, royalty and aristocracy and 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 all the rest of it. So I think that 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 was an interesting interesting kind of twist. But but some of the some of the issues that are being raised here, if uh, for anybody who's interested. Uh, about conditions of life, uh, of course, Marx partly draw, draw, draws upon uh, Engels' condition of the working class uh, in uh, England in 1944, and and uh, uh, but also uh, there is Engels' little tract on the housing question, uh, which talks a lot about uh, you know land rents and rising land rents and it's interesting when he starts talking about rising land rents in london it's like oh this is like reading tomorrow's you know yesterday's financial times uh and 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 see so many of these things which which have echoes today and i mean okay the different frameworks and different institutions and so on and and i think uh this 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 question of uh, the labor reserve, and um, where is the global labor reserve these days? Well, there's Africa, there's still the big labor reserve in Africa that's not been mobilized. Um, but uh, um, when you think about the fact that the wage labor force in 1980 was something like 2 billion, uh, it's, it's now close to 3 billion, so it has increased by 1 billion over the last 30 years. Uh, that's a huge mobilization of a reserve army into the wage labor force. Um, much of it, of course, is living under the conditions, under you know, really, really miserable conditions. And, and, and there's a very strange thing that goes on in the financial press, which is everybody is, is, is so surprised that inflation has not taken off. And everybody's so surprised that not only inflation has not taken off, but wage levels haven't risen. And, and it seems to me that the, the analysis here would, gives you a very good idea as to why wage levels haven't risen. There's such a huge labor reserve that's been mobilized and is sitting out there. A lot of it, given the technologies which are you know, creating unemployment and the artificial intelligence that's coming in and all the rest of it, you've got a huge disposable population there. And, and uh, of course, uh, even, in, you know, even in the United States, when you're relatively full employment, there's going to be hardly any pressure on wages uh, because that is the situation. And if there's no pressure on wages, there's not going to be any pressure on, on, on inflation. I really don't understand why people don't understand that. And if there's, you know, and if there's no pressure on inflation, then, then interest rates can stay very low. You know? so, so you've got this, the, the kind of economy you've got right now, low interest rates, low inflation, very, very uh, poor uh, wage uh, levels, 
and 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 that is that is the kind of the nature of the capitalist economy right now and it's hard to see anything major occurring which is going to going to transform that and i think we're going to be stuck in this for some time the big problem is of course is the effective demand where's the effective demand well part of it is supplied by the credit system which is why i think marx's introduction of the credit system even in here is interesting and and the monetization of a lot of what this is about uh, and and uh you know some of the other so this is this is this is the sort of situation uh we are in and i think marx does give us the sorts of tools to think about this and to understand you know what what the future might 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 look like given the, the constellation of forces right now i mean if wages started to go up significantly and they'd have to do it globally you see you, can, you just can't do it here it has to be a global increase in wage in wage levels well in china as the wages have gone up significantly in the last you know 2 or 3 years but one of the responses of chinese capital is to go off to bangladesh and laos and cambodia and and all the rest of it because and and actually there are some signs they may be even setting up uh, production activity in in africa so so the the the, the question of the labor reserve uh is is there and 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 of course it's it's been mobilized and it's sitting there and it is disposable and uh, is living at very precarious living i mean how would we write this chapter now it's an interesting kind of thing you know sit down just to rewrite this chapter and how would we and, and what would, what would be the examples we would put in uh, that's your final exam by the way rewrite <laughs> rewrite rewrite this chapter <laughs> Thank you professor could you let us know what the reading is for next week Yeah it's the primitive accumulation the last the last part So that will be next week that's the last session okay Good Thank you